0: I'm Mark Andy. This is CFO Bookshelf. My next guest should need no introduction. His name is Gary Harps, and he's one of those people you'd want as a mentor, a guide throughout your professional career. I came across Gary's first book in 2008, Six Disciplines for Excellence. And as usual, my instincts kicked in because I realized his work in strategy and execution was special. So I learned everything I could about the framework. I even got to visit with him over a couple of go-to meetings. Remember that software? Uh, Gary is also the co-founder of Solomon Software that was later acquired by Great Plains. And if you do work in accounting systems, you'll then know that Microsoft acquired Great Plains. I've cheated. I've already listened to this interview twice. It's packed with some great stories and insights on strategies and priorities. And you'll soon understand why I think so highly of Gary Harps. That conversation is coming up next here on CFO Bookshelf. Gary Harps has a background in accounting, but his career shifted to software. So the first question I had for him was, how did you get involved in the software industry?
1: Uh, That's an interesting question. Of course, the I I grew up in the, or got my education at Ohio State University, and I worked in the treasurer's office. And I was always fascinated with the use of technology and the solving of business problems. And so, when we started um, Solomon Software, at the time was called TLD. Uh, that really was the idea that um, we that there was a lot of mainframe development concepts for software, but the micro market was just beginning. This was pre pre-IBM uh, PC even. And uh, so we thought M- there's going to be an opportunity here on these micros, micro platform to do um, more rigorous software design and development. That that was the essence of the idea behind uh, our first business that produced Solomon Software.
0: I'm going to assume almost everybody in corporate accounting, or I should say corporate accounting, maybe say 2010 and before, they've heard of the name Solomon software. I mean, to me, that's just, uh, we know that name. We know great Plains. We know some of the competitors. I did not know this Gary until a few days ago, researching for this conversation, TLB. And you just said TLB a couple of minutes ago. What does TLB mm-hmm. stand for? Very, very interesting.
1: Oh yeah. It, it's it stands for the Lord's business. And there, of course, there's a story behind that. Um, Actually, the way the business really got started was in a um, a Bible study group, and uh, my three, my two partners, and I were in this group. And I remember Jack, who's the the senior member of our triumvirate, uh, he he said, uh, "You know, if faith is real, it should affect your everyday decisions and your everyday life, and it shouldn't be just sort of a social thing going to church on Sunday." And I was thinking about that during the week, and. We began to talk about well, um, if this is real, let's let's go all in. And and so uh, Jack is kind of an entrepreneurial guy, and he said, well, you know, one way to do that is run your own business. Then then the decisions you make can be um, integrated with your faith. And so we bounced that idea around for a while, and um, finally decided decided to start the business. And um, and so we actually named it TLB to remind us of why we did it. And so it was really more of a personal um, sort of mission statement as to we wanted to run a business that we thought would be uh, meet the standards of bib- biblical um, uh, principles. Now, what we didn't know was you you never can live up to those things. You know, <laughs> we were, we ended up 20 years in that business, uh, always trying to figure out, well, what does it mean to do the right thing here? and. Um, we often didn't know, to be honest with you. So it was, it was quite an adventure. The thing, the thing I would share with other people, whether you are people of faith or not, is the profound impact of starting the business with two people that held something in common with you that was more important than the business made the business better. And so uh, the the thing people remark the most about um, the relationship between Jack and Vern and I is. It's transcended five different businesses, and they're still my best friends. And you know, I see them every week. Every, I talk to, to Vern almost every day. And people don't understand it because businesses usually divide people. You know, when you're talking about millions of dollars and those sort of things, you end up becoming uh, conflicting objectives. But we always took the position that we had we held in common a belief that was more important than the business. And um, it actually made the business better.
0: So then you go from TLB to Solomon, who's considered the wisest person ever to walk the face of the earth.
1: Yeah, that's how we came up with the name of our product. TLB was the name of the business. Solomon was the name of the product. And then we eventually renamed it Solomon because the brand branding was just easier. Everybody right. had heard of Solomon, but nobody heard of TLB. Uh,
0: personal opinion. And feel free to push back, sir. Uh, at the top of the show, I've already mentioned the two books. Your two books, Six Disciplines for Excellence, outstanding, and then the second book, Six Disciplines Execution Revolution. Personal opinion. I don't know if you have a third book in you. I think it'd be interesting to hear a story from your words, from your perspective, going back those early days. But it would be a book that also include Doug Bergum which that name, I know uh, you know that name very well. And in the green room, we were talking about Sandra Kurtzig, uh, who created the Ask database. Uh, she may have created the very first MRP system, uh, period. And it would be interesting for there to be a story about U3, but you'd be the initial author. I just think it'd be interesting to hear from U3, which goes back to the late 80s, early 90s, as ERP is starting to explode,
1: yeah, I can see why that would be interesting. Although I certainly wouldn't put myself in the same category as Doug in terms of his uh, business acumen and <clears throat> his career with Microsoft, and of course now a governor, he's he's really a um, an unusually gifted individual. Um, you know, if you really want to go back to the early history, so much happened in Atlanta, and you go come completely back to MSA and Bill Goodhue. I don't know if you've heard no. Bill Goodhue. That uh, does not ring so a bell. In, in, another, in another interview, yes. I can take you back many years to what how the industry really started there from an accounting
0: point of view. I want to go to your book, The Six Disciplines for Excellence. And my first question may seem like a softball question, but we've talked a lot about strategy on this show. I just want to hear your definition, or it doesn't have to be a definition, just talk about it. What is strategy?
1: Yeah, well, uh, maybe a, a, a deeper question is, is, what is the purpose of strategy? You know, you, you can say what you, you, might, you might disagree on the definition of it, but what is really the purpose? And, um, you know, a, a unique trait of human beings <clears throat> is the ability to think about something they would like to pursue before they actually pursue it it's a uh, some people have called it the first creation in your mind you imagine what your uh, spouse is going to be like or your house is going to be like or your business and it's it's quite unusual compared to animal kingdom you know animals are living the same way they did 10,000 years ago and yet humans have gone to the moon And so what is it that makes us different? Well, it's this ability to imagine some future and then you organize your efforts around that future. And uh, so strategy, really the purpose of strategy is to, to agree on some vision of the future. What, What are we, what are we trying to do? Where are we trying to go? And then start to organize and align resources behind it. And so um, that's the easy part to, to describe about strategy. I think that the more challenging part is how you really develop it and what works. And you know, there's you um, there are very sophisticated models for uh, you know from from uh, consulting firms for large organizations. My heart and interest has been more on the small end of the business scale, and I'd say for most of the clients we serve. They don't need super sophisticated models for strategy. There's just a series of questions of um, basic things like, well, you know, who's the customer you want to serve, and what is it you're you're going to do for that customer? Is it really clear, and how would that make you different? Just some really basic dialogue. And what I find surprising in these basic questions is that people have such divergent views and we come into an organization that's already successful and the people around the table the leadership really have no common idea of the future and they've still been successful but not as successful as they would have been if they'd had much more focus and uh, I remember one example I was in uh, Boulder Colorado with a consulting firm it's a fairly small firm and I asked the leadership I said just take out a post-it note and write down uh, 10 years from now what your dream would be for just the size of this business, just, just revenues, consulting revenues. And these were people that worked with each other for years. And the range of answers went from uh, uh, $10 million to 700 million.
0: Oh my goodness. That's a wide range. Sounds like someone's not, yeah, been it's talk- wide range. It, no one's talking about and it. Uh, it.
1: Yeah. It's not, it's not unusual. And so obviously if you're really thinking about 700 million, there's some things you would start doing differently than if you're thinking about 10. So that's a long answer to your question, but um, I like strategy because it's about making choices. Michael Porter uh, is one of my favorite strategy thinkers. And he said the essence of strategy is deciding what not to do.
0: I think Bruce Henderson was the first person to use the term strategic planning. Again, you've done more research on this than I have. If he wasn't the first person to put those two words together, he's one of the first people to monetize the business of strategic planning. Ron Baker is one of my favorite. By the way, he's another top 100 accountant uh, influencer, and he's been on the show once, going to be on later this year. Ron is. I love his comment about strategic planning. He says it's a great idea that's sometimes poorly executed. So I've already asked you about strategy. When you hear the term strategic planning, just just what comes to mind?
1: Well, I, I alluded to it briefly. <clears throat> I, I think it's just a um, at at least in the small and mid sized space, it's not about enormous amounts of external research and those sort of things. It, the real payback is getting the team aligned around a few basic things that are important to the success of the organization. So the process is one of just getting the right people in the room and asking questions and let them dialogue until they come to a consensus on those things. Now you, you, this this the way I answered this is rooted in a in an assumption. And this again is a Michael Porter quote. he said it would be better to have b level strategy with a execution than the other way around. And so for most of the clients we serve, we're not in there. we don't we're not strategy consultants in the sense of we don't know their business, we don't know their markets. What we're consultants at is trying to get these people to agree so they can align their resources. And <clears throat> so we're more in that. Let's get some A execution on a B strategy, than the perfect strategy.
0: We'll be right back. Money is all around us, and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it? And what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? You perfect foreshadowing of my next question. And it's almost like you've already have answered it. I met you, I want to say first met you 2014, 2015, roughly during that time period. And I had already read your first book. I don't think Six Disciplines Revolution had come out yet. And you were the first person I had ever heard or read where you used the word strategy and execution together. I've read hundreds, well, not hundreds, 100 plus books on strategy. Maybe Porter alludes to it, but you're the first person who explicitly, strategy plus execution, first person. And I don't read a lot of people who use those two words together. So my question is, and you've kind of have already answered it, what is six disciplines?
1: Well, six disciplines is is really um, uh, we refer to it as a system of management, and um, you know we've debated a lot actually what to call it, but or, you know what to label it. But a system d- d- by the of way, don't,
0: don't change it, don't change it. I'm sorry if you're, don't change six disciplines is perfect. Don't change it.
1: <laughs> yeah, the six disciplines really is a collection of best practices from. Uh, different industries. And again, so much of what I've done is is biased towards the needs of a small and mid-sized organization. Uh, I remember talking to a venture capitalist way back in the early days of Solomon. He says, the the primary feature for the middle market is integration. And uh, I thought it was an interesting statement. He said, uh, what people need in the middle market the most is to have things hooked together to save them time so they don't have to hook them together. At the high end of the market, people can afford Organizations can afford to buy best of breed and then they spend a fortune integrating it. So our, the six disciplines methodology was based on the idea that <clears throat> there's a strategic planning industry. There's a change management industry. There's an operational consulting I- industry. There's leadership development industries. There's continuous improvement in quality programs like Baldrige and Six Sigma um, Toyota Kata, And what meant, what, smaller and mid-sized organizations can't do is integrate all that stuff they can't have experts in each of those areas so i personally spent when we started the business i spent you know several years researching the the best practices in each of those and we distilled them into 40 some best practices that are distributed through the, the our red wheel there the six the six uh, hexagons and um one of them, really, if you look at each of those wheels there, they represent roughly an industry. You know, there's strategic planning, there's change management, um, et cetera. So uh, what we also found was that six disciplines is, is a methodology, but it's also a system of management that we ended up having to, we wrapped around these best practices software to make it easier to implement in a coaching model in the belief that, uh, good habits for most people, um, you can't talk them into doing the right thing. You have to coach them and hold them accountable. I use fitness as an example. Most of us know how to be fit. Most of us, my wife and I pay somebody to make us do twice a week things that we know how to do at home. And we both remark, we will never, well, if he's on vacation, our coach, we don't do it. You know? <laughs> so, so, uh, Anyway, that's that six disciplines is a methodology, it's a business, and it's a management system, depending on how you look at
0: it. I can't say that I'm a betting man, because I think I've bought one lottery ticket in my life, and that was given to me. But if I were a betting man, I would suggest or presuppose that every small organization you go into wants a quick fix. This is a Mm -hmm. long game, isn't it? Now, for those of us who've been in business, it really is. no sure fixes, right, for the CEOs who may be listening.
1: No, there, there really isn't. And um, <clears throat> I'd think some of the, the – to, to the point you're making, some of the things we're learning right now about why we haven't uh, – to get to the, <clears throat> the lowest level in the organization more successfully, we, we have learned that we tried to do too much for the organization, for them, instead of through them. And this, this is the difference between a quick fix and the hard way. And we call it the discipling model. You know, there's one thing to coach. A coach um, stands on the sidelines and really guides individuals to perform better. A disciple reproduces themselves in, in someone else. You see the distinction?
0: Absolutely.
1: And so we have been coaching so much the last several years that we end up taking ownership of things because we can make things go faster ourselves, but we don't end up creating a disciple inside the organization. And that takes longer, but it's much more fruitful on the long term. You you see the analogy.
0: Absolutely. Could agree so with If you on. want
1: to change the world, you you make disciples. You don't just coach, you make disciples.
0: I was trying to give you a lot of um, thank yous about a certain graph in the book. It's about what the best do the best. That's repetitive. That's needless redundancy. I think I think that's the term, needless redundancy. What do the best do? And there's a graph that you have early in the book. It's a graph that I've used a lot. One of the things that's missing, and I'm going to let you fill in the blanks instead of me talking, but one of the things that's missing in this graph, and I may have mentioned this to you in an email message, having an incredible product or an incredible service was not on this chart, this bar chart. Instead, what are the top two or three items about what the best do or have?
1: The, if you read the the reason I, this is my belief in why that's not on the list. the The research was structured to find out what the difference between the top performing and the bottom performing are. And I think it's a given both to top performers and bottom performers that good product is essential. So you, you, it does not show up in the numbers because there's not a huge difference in perception of that importance. But the ones who really performed well, you found, okay, it's a given you got to have a decent product. What then makes the distinction? And that's what that list is. What is the distinction between the top and the
0: bottom? I was just curious if maybe someone came back who's in a highly competitive industry. Well, I mean, let's take uh, ERP systems. You know, maybe there's some features that are just lacking, and they there's not enough resources to get there. And that's why I was curious. I wonder why someone didn't mention because I do agree with you. Most people do have, at least in their own eyes, hey, we got a killer product or Service, but I do want to read real quickly. Number one on this list: strength of senior leadership, attract and retain quality people, and disciplined approach to business. Those are the first three items about what the best do. Uh, want want to add to that?
1: Well, I, I would probably um, maybe clarify some things I've learned since then. <clears throat> I think it's well represented in a in a client I'm working with right now. They've got some huge problems. Um, they happen to be in the healthcare industry, and you know are swamped by the COVID issues and some <clears throat> terrific external pressures. And if if you talk to the leadership team, you and say, "What are your biggest problems?" They can rattle off um, two or three things that, um, what for example, they're they're overrun on the phone lines and they can't answer the phone, and uh, so that's a problem. <clears throat> But what what I'm trying to point out to them, there's a problem behind the problem, um, which is uh, they've had this overrunning the phones problem for three years. If they list their other top two or three items, they've had those problems for three years. And I said, the real problem is why can you not resolve the problem in less than three years? You you see what I'm getting at. And so if you take those top three things, um, the first being uh, strength of leadership, the second, second, remind me again, was, oh, getting the right people, getting the right people. And the third one was. um,
0: disciplined approach to business.
1: Those three things are really the root causes of the problems they're having now. Their problems are not the problems they're having now. Their problems are, why do we have these problems and not get them resolved? And so those three things speak to the underlying foundation. They they don't have the right people in the right spot. They don't have people who can resolve a problem that's an old problem. And um, so, it, I, I that's that's sort of a nuance that I've learned since that list occurred. That the surface level problem is not the problem. It's it's usually a layer or two below that problem.
0: Yeah, one one of the things I learned early in my Consulting career is that there are, there are no bad ideas of a business owner. I'm talking mainly smaller business owners. That's a great idea. That's a great idea. Well, then I come across your book, and you talk about VFOs, vital few objectives. In my opinion, all roads start there. If not there, it's number. Two. If it's not number one, it's number two. And you're 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 smiling at that. How important are the vital few objectives?
1: Well, that's a big question, and you know the the concept behind vital few is really choosing, making hard choices about what you will and won't do. And uh, you know, if you, if you think about how organizations get started, um, the, you know, there's not normally a big strategic plan or anything. Somebody has an idea that it's a burning thing, and that. That burning thing focuses them, and at some point, if it meets a market need, um, you end up with a moving from an individual to an organization. And the kind of person who's willing to start a business is one who has a lot of ideas, and um, they're willing to take risks. But an interesting dynamic occurs once you start to get an organization where um, you've got to align the resources. To, to deliver the idea that the very person who started it can come back, become the enemy of the success because they continue creating more ideas. And, and instead of executing well on one, you end up uh, being spread all over the place. And I, I fall in that category. I, I speak from experience that I, I'm always thinking two steps of wherever we're ahead of wherever we're at. And, It really creates a lot of disruption in the organization and uh, reduces performance. You know, with six disciplines, we challenge leaders to get sort of contract with each other about what the priorities are and then give each other freedom to hold ourselves accountable. So like if if I walk in today in my organization with another idea, which I do frequently, people just whip out their plan and say, what do you want me to take off the plan? And I say, uh, never mind. <laughs> you know? And they make they make me a better leader. It makes me a better leader. That comes back to that word discipline we talked about. Yes, discipline is not constraining. You know, you you raise your kids and they think discipline's a dirty word, but really, discipline is what brings freedom.
0: In the book, there's a story that you raise. You're having to come up with a new release, and I mean quickly but there's probably not a lot of cash in the bank, which means I can't go out and hire more developers. The topic is in the book is embracing constraints. Can you reshare? Can you take us back to that story that I'm describing?
1: Yeah, this has to do with the way the industry unfolded. And um, if you go clear back into, I mean, this dates me a lot, but if you go clear back into uh, the very early days of, CPM before IBM PC, there were spreadsheet tools and things like that that came out. And then on on the initial PC, uh, one, two, three, Lotus, one, two, three, and uh, WordPerfect. And some of those people or those organizations were first to market and they got major market shares and had fantastic products. But every time there's a change in platforms, technology, the whole base of the business you're in keeps you from moving to the next platform as quickly as a startup. So a startup that starts with Windows and never worries about DOS or previous platforms, they actually move faster adopting the new technology and they can get first mover advantage. And so we're in that position in the late um, 80s. We built a business around the IBM PC and the DOS platform, but we kept hearing about these graphical interfaces, of course, on Apple, but Apple didn't have big penetration in the business space. And people in fact said, well, you would never need a graphical interface for accounting. I mean, it was like, why would you do this? But we were concerned that in a change of platform, we'd get left behind to, to the windows environment. So we began to worry about that. And um, we, at the same time we had a failed product development on another uh, product and it really had drained all of our cash. And Um, as a leader you know I'd done a lot of things wrong and gotten us into a position where we didn't have much cash and we needed to to get to market with a Windows version I said within two years this was early 90 89 and um, we we really only had the resources to put five people on this project which is kind of ridiculous I mean um, Great Plains who was our largest competitor at the time had a hundred people working on their windows version. It was public information. Um, that, I mean, they, they talked about it. We've got a team of hundred people building our next generation and we're sitting there saying, uh, yeah, we're going to start with five. And, uh, so they had started nine months before us, they formed this team. So they were ahead of us in time and they were, you know, 20 times as many people. And I just got to people in together in a room. This is back to embracing constraints. And I said, here's the deal. We need a new product in two years. We can't put more than the people in this room on the project. Go figure out a way to do this. And, uh, you know, on, that, on this this is a leadership topic. is when do you ask people for the impossible and it's uh, demotivating? Or when do you ask people for the impossible and they figure out it is possible? You know, that, that's a that's a thin line of what's ridiculous and what's miraculous. <clears throat> but anyway, what this group did, they sat there and said, well, to build an accounting system, we're going to need a graphical interface where we know nothing about it. And that's going to take a huge amount of work back in the early 80s or late early 90s. We need a report writer and we need a, a database. And instead of building those things ourselves, um, we've stumbled across Visual Basic in a trade show in Atlanta. And at the time, Microsoft did not view Visual Basic as a business product. They viewed it as a, it was in their entertainment um, group to play with. And we told them what we were going to use it for, and they laughed at us. We said, we're going to use it to build an accounting system. They said, no, you're kidding. No. And so we built the largest Visual Basic application in the world. Um, And we plugged it into a database system because Visual Basic didn't hook into a database. And we uh, built, we adopted a third-party report writer and we assembled all these pieces. We built it off the shelf standard components and we shipped our product within 30 days of Great
0: Plains. Great story. And by the way, Visual Basic, 1.0, 2.0, I'll skip ahead, 6.0. I think it became something else. So Visual Basic was a big deal. <laughs> uh, it
1: was a big deal, but they didn't know it at the time. They didn't know
0: it at the time. I And thank you. I love that story. And speaking of stories, I pulled something else out of the, the book. It's one thing to hear people talk about stop-start lists. Well, I like to read them, and you actually have a stop List in your book, and I'm going to read these real fast, uh, stop targeting low-end market. And that's, again, it, everything's a good idea. Well, every customer is a great idea, it, but you said no. Number two, eliminate Unix is a target platform. Eliminate support of multiple databases. That was number three. Number four, remove our target market list, um, or remove from target our target market list foreign markets, that require double-byte language sets. That sounds complicated to me. And number five, phase out OEM program. That is a brilliant stop list, and it's got strategy built into it. Do you find that most small businesses struggle with their stop lists?
1: Oh, I, I, I all of them, every single one. By the way, the stop list is one of the most um, well-received ideas on our checklist when we show it. Two leaders, they love it, and, but when we do the exercise, nobody stops anything.
0: I was going to say this is so, this has to be the most clear and complete list I've ever read. Period, bar none. And and I'm I'm assuming it took you a while for this this evolved, it emerged.
1: Yeah, that's that's a di- that that list sort of reflected me in my errors. I talk about always doing the next thing. I dumped on our team for ten years. Oh, let's do this. Let's do this. And that list emerged. We implemented that stop list at the time we implemented Windows platform. And we grew uh, 600% in the next five years. When we started, we quit doing all those things.
0: That's remarkable.
1: Yeah, we grew from 9 million in sales to 60 million in sales in no time because we quit doing all those things.
0: In the book, your second book, The Six Disciplines execution revolution I'm gonna say this is probably written more for the CEO who's in a big hurry yeah, it was and in the book early in the book there's a two by two matrix it's called the business excellence model I love it it will be in the show notes so you can visualize it see it but real quickly from an audio standpoint what is what is this excellence model we're describing?
1: Well, it's describing sort of the phases businesses go through or any, any organization <clears throat> that lasts very long. And the, the matrix on the left has in it uh, sort of strength of strategy and, the, and across the bottom is strength of execution. It's, it's kind of a traditional four-block four matrix. And so in the lower left-hand corner, you would have low, weak strategy and weak execution. And in that stage, you're in a... Um, really a firefighting environment. You're say, not growing, you're not to, profitable, and you're, to a, them. you're in a mess. And I've been there. And then if you go up the, the strategy side and you really get something powerful, mean that's relevant to the marketplace, you start a growth wave. And by the way, that happened to Solomon. We, we went from um, 2 million to 8 million. We went from a 2.5 million run rate to a 7 million run rate in 90 days. And it occurred after a PC Magazine review. And we, we had to put in 60 phone lines. So we immediately moved from the lower left-hand quadrant to the the growth quadru- quadrant. That triggered us moving into the lower right corner, which is we were overwhelmed operationally. So we were not executing. We grew so fast we couldn't execute.
0: Because so these
1: four quadrants.
0: Well, I was just saying, because you're not just selling software, you were helping to get it implemented, right?
1: Yes, that's right. And we, we ended up having to put in 60 phone lines uh, in a short period of time. But you know what? That's just the first problem. Who's going to answer those? It took us two years to recover. From that growth rate, we did. We didn't have the management bandwidth. We didn't have, know how to hire right. We didn't have the technical expertise. So really, that quadrant is a great way to diagnose where am I at and how did I get here and where to go next? and. Uh, If you're not growing, you want to grow, but be prepared as soon as you grow, you'll have pressure on your execution, which is the lower right-hand quadrant. And, you know, the goal for all of us is to be in the upper right. You'd love to be in that space where you're growing regularly at a predictable pace and you're executing and highly profitable, but the reality is nobody stays in the upper right-hand quadrant. Uh, you're, You're always battling to get back to it.
0: I have two more questions. I'll save six disciplines for last. How how can we learn more? But I ask every single guest this question. And by the way, I can see you've got a big bookcase right behind you to your right. what What, what are some of your what, what are some of your favorite books? Or what are some titles that come to mind? What are some titles that maybe you gift to other people or you recommend? What What books are top of mind for you?
1: Well, I'm rereading a book right now called um, Iconoclast. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. It's Dr. Gregory Burns. And it, it's a an really fascinating book. I'll just tell one sort of story from it. Uh, the premise is, the you know, why is it some people can go against the grain of the world and do amazing things? And he, he, he points out that the brain is about 2% of the body mass, but takes 20% of the energy. And uh, he points out that the way our brains work are, is really highly designed to conserve energy because it's such a, an energy consumer. And the one, one of the ways the brain does that is it looks for patterns of things, and then it turns it into an automatic response. So you, you think about when you first drove a car, you, you had to think about everything. Move my foot from the accelerator to the brake, et cetera. Now you, what do you do? You listen to podcasts, talk on the phone, and you don't think about it at all. And so the brain has this sort of um, uh, that saves time that when the input comes into the brain, it no longer processes what to do. It just goes to a subroutine, so to speak. And it's very low energy. <clears throat> well, that works for us and against us because uh, there's a famous experiment done in the 50s. I'm sure you've heard of it, but they they brought a bunch of people in a room. All of them were in on the on the experiment and they held up a card and showed lines of different lengths. And they, they would bring people in to say, which one's longer? And all the people that were in on the experience would say, no, they're the same length. And then bring in somebody else. And they were pressured to think, well, was that line really different or am I wrong? And most people caved into the peer the group think. Most people would say, yeah, it's the same length because five other people said that. Well, that was the first experiment in the 50s. But what happened, Burns cited was in uh, oh, the early after the turn of the century, 20, 2004 or five, they redid this experiment with um, brain scanning technology <clears throat> to see what was going on in the brains of the people who agreed. And it turns out that, that three-fourths of the people who agreed uh, actually believed that the lines were the same length. And the reason was the brain short-circuit, the brain has built into it, hey, if these people say it's the same length, it probably is. And then it stops thinking and evaluating about it. And so what I find fascinating about this, see remember I started talking to you about the challenge of getting deeper in the organization. The challenge is the way people think. And how do you bring about change in the way people think? Because your actions flow out of what you think and believe. And if you can't change what people think, then you can't change what they do. And so this has taught us that when people resist change, often it's not because they're obstinate or, you know, just old or, or whatever. It's really because their brain, they're overloaded and their brain is protecting them from overload. So they jump to conclusion. And so, you know, what this what this teaches me is if I'm going to affect change, I have to get the commitment to get the bandwidth from these people to think and change their thinking. If I can't get the bandwidth, I can't change their thinking. If I can't change their thinking, I can't change their act.
0: Gary, last question. How can we learn more about six disciplines?
1: Oh, like everybody, we're on the on the website, uh sixdisciplines.com. Uh we, you know, that site just describes some of the processes and the best practices we go through to help organizations. So that's that's the easiest way. I like talking to people so anybody on there can make an appointment and either I or one of our coaches would be glad to chat with anybody about anything.
0: Well this has been fantastic. I cannot thank you enough. When this show started, you were in my top one hundred list and actually probably the top twenty list. And but I, I wanted I I wanted to make sure I had I get the timing right. And so I have always admired you from a distance and just had the greatest admiration for you. I I cannot thank you enough for for coming on, sir.
1: Well, I, I do appreciate the opportunity, but I want to give back to people like you who really synthesize information. You know, what a great value you're adding, taking old guys like me and letting me share a little bit of my hard knocks learning.
0: You are listening to CFO Bookshelf. Lifelong learning for financial leaders. And now back to our host, Mark Gandhi. Gary Harps, thank you very much. I could let it go. I had to look up what did VB6 give way to? I could not remember. It was vB.net. And of course, Visual Basic continues to be the scripting language for macros and all of the Microsoft Office products. Again, Gary's books are six disciplines for Excellence, The second one more geared for CEOs. Six Disciplines, Execution, Revolution. Next week, we have on another top 100 accounting influencer. His name is Ron Baker. He's been on the show before. He's the co-host of my favorite podcast, The Soul of Enterprise. This time around, we'll be talking about his book, Mind Over Matter. That's coming up next week on CFO Bookshelf. I'm Mark Gandy. Until next time.